1: several students at Monash Art Design and Architecture. I always have to try and remember the acronym. I know it's a good backronym, MADA, and then I'm like, what's the A again? <laughs> anyway, we have several students today, as well as I'm also joined by Laura Aston. Welcome, Laura. Thank you very much. Or welcome back, I should say. So our idea today, we'll get into a, what we're talking about, but first I'd like to introduce our guests. We have three students of, you're all students of Urban Planning and Design, right? Mm-hmm, yes. Starting, let's do it alphabetically, Lachlan Burke.
3: That's me. So uh, I'm currently studying in the second year. My studio this semester is Inclusive Cities, working with Darabin. uh, And with Sylvia, we're the co-founders of MAPS, the Monash Association of Planning Students.
1: That's a backronym too, isn't it? It is. It is.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we like it to be remembered by the thing itself rather than it's an acronym. So So
1: that's the Association of Students Studying planning and yes, Monash. Yes, that's yeah.
3: right. So yeah. we've we're running a few events this year and we've run our worst walk of Melbourne that was earlier, mm-hmm. um, which was pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Um, got a good tenant for that. And apart from that I'm also working as a transport planner and movement in place consulting.
1: And Will McIntyre, do you want to quickly introduce yourself?
0: Yeah of course. Um, so I'm a first year in the Urban Planning Design Masters. I previously came from the States and did a environment and sustainability masters at Monash and My undergraduate background was biology and environmental studies at UCSC. So I've completely shifted from all of this amazing biology stuff to the built environment in urban planning. And throughout my life, I've gotten involved in a lot of international development projects, um, both working and as internships, so that's why I'm here. And I'd love to talk about them all.
1: Great. And Sylvia, you are also a, what's the word, co-founder?
0: Yeah,
4: co-founder of Monash Association of Planning Students. Yes. Yeah. I'm also a second year um, master's student Monash with Lockheed. uh, and well so I came from a background where I did um, a Bachelor of Arts and then I did my honours on uh, Feminine Philosophy that was fun and I taught for a little while and then decided to pursue my dreams and here I am.
1: Some people would study planning and then have it be their dream to study philosophy. <laughs> <True>. Someone <laughs> out there so, yeah. has done that. Taking the
4: unconventional role, maybe, I don't
1: know. So yeah. to recap, you did philosophy, yeah. you did environment um, or biology. biology, and what was yours, Lachlan? I did development studies as my undergraduate. Right, and somehow you've all ended up with an interest in planning <laughs> and development. The right place, because this yeah. must be the place. <laughs> <laughs> so. Same way. events that MAPS is organising this year is part of what's called the Festival of Urbanism, which is coming up in early September. It's co-sponsored by University of Sydney, Monash University and the Henry Holland Trust. Mm-hmm. And it's a yearly series of events and um, usually it's talks and discussions, but MAPS this year is running something a bit different. Do you mm-hmm. want to, dis- Sylvia, can you describe what, what the event is? Yeah, so
4: um, I think for MAPS we started off with events uh, where we held walks and there were free walks that we talked about just any planning or social issues and I think what we really enjoyed is that people from, you're not from planning, just people interested in their city just came and they really enjoyed it and we learned a lot from them so mm. and we we thought of continuing that uh, but we thought of also doing something a little different so we, have, we were asked to um, work on um, the Festival of Urbanism and to come up with an event and we thought we wanted to do a race instead, mm-hmm. uh, slightly faster than a walk. Yeah, uh, definitely taking it up a level. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> is it uh, not a
1: foot race though, is it? It's, or it's a race by Oh, it's a transport. race
3: by anything you want. You, yeah. could, you could use a car, you could use your feet. If you use a bike, you'll probably win. So yeah. uh, we're not just measuring by... Um, Your arrival time—that's going to obviously score you well. We're also measuring your carbon emissions Uh, and the calories you burn along the way. So the more calories you burn and the less carbon you emit, the better you're going to do in the race.
4: Mm -hmm. And I think the real challenge is that you can't take your phones with you. Or you can, but rather they're not used. Mm They can't be used. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, you'll be using a BYO Melway. Yeah. So bring
3: uh, your own (laughs) Melway. We'll give you, we'll, we'll give contestants a map. No street names, no nothing, just a really bare footprint of all Mm -hmm. the buildings, and we'll put the dots of where the different locations are, so they're all historic pubs, um, and we'll give you an address. And so your challenge is to find set addresses with a Melway. Just
1: quickly, some of our listeners Will not know what a melway is. Ah, right.
3: So if you're a yes, Melbourne, well. <laughs> oh,
1: right.
0: I'm, I'm new to Melbourne.
3: Right. So yeah, if you're a Melbourne local, um, or if you've got really enthusiastic driving parents, or you really like to go to different places around Victoria, um, you'll have noticed a little uh, book in the corner of your uh, wardrobe or closet or something. Um, you could pick it up, and it, if it has the word melway on it with a nice red arrow, you know it's mm-hmm. the right book. There's an edition every single year, and basically they're um, street directories that are, show a, a lot of different things. They're probably the most successful maps in terms of getting a lot of information in one mm. one area. Um, and so avid driving fans and avid maps fans um, are lovers of these books.
1: Often people that have studied planning, people I've met throughout my uh, working life, have a disproportionate tendency to have collected Melways. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so, Rare editions and things like that's that. That's it. Ah. And so... You,
3: You'll need your own for this race, and so we're offering a promotion of a uh, quarter the price off. Um, so if you sign up, um, and I think it's $10, yes. um, we'll email you straight away with a promo code mm-hmm. so that you can get your own 2020 Melway um, at yeah. a reduced price. Yeah,
4: it. And we really want to thank Melway actually for supporting us mm. uh, in
1: this race. So anyone can sign up. Yeah, anyone race. at all. That's right. Yeah. So and you start where? You start at some... Federation sort of Square, yeah. All
3: oh, right. Um, yeah. And so it's teams of three to six. But if you haven't got yourself a team already, so, you know, it could be your, your workplace, could be your friends, could be your family, could be anyone, a bunch of students. But if you haven't, um, we've also got a Find Me A Team team. Mm-hmm. So you can find one on the day. We'll sort you out.
1: How long do you reckon it will take to do this race? Well... was yeah, that giving too yeah. much away? Well, to... no,
3: um, no. We could, we could say definitely that you probably would get it done in three hours. Can you ask people for directions, I guess? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you can ask locals for directions. Right. Yeah. They probably won't know. Yeah. yeah, you can rock up in the suburb and, you know, look yeah. for it. There's any number of ways you could tackle it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's the prize apart from, you know, getting to know your city better and Yes, that's stuff. right. Yeah, so our,
3: our grand prize is for the winning team. Every member will receive a $50 pre-topped up Mikey. So free travel for about a week and a half. The next team will win $40. And the third team will win $30, yeah. I
4: Mikey, like you. But, you know, the whole cliche, everyone's a winner. Um, that's right. Towards the end, at our end point, everyone gets a free cocktail reception. Yeah, oh. yeah. so food, food
3: for all. Just got to find it. <laughs> <laughs> right. oh, <that's> right.
1: <laughs> I guess that is the prize, isn't it? If you mm-hmm. know where you're going, you're going to get food at the end of it. <laughs> So that's the maps. What's the name of it again? The urban orienteering or... Quick, quick maps. Quick maps. Is that a reference to something? <laughs> quick maps? I think oh, in okay. this it
3: refers to whipping out your street directory as fast as you can, frantically going, ah, oh, uh,
1: Yep. Yep. And you know the number. I mean, I when I was first living in Melbourne, my whole life fitted on the red pages of the Melways, which is the inner suburbs part of the Melway. Awesome. And when they're, I can't almost remember, it was like page 28 or 29, it was like, if you wanted to go to a party or you're thinking about renting a house or something, it's like, no, it's not even on page 29, <laughs> it was like the edge of the known universe. I'd like to hear a bit more about why you chose to study urban planning and design because you went from philosophy to your dream. Yes. Yeah.
4: I think what what really got me thinking about urban design and then urban planning uh, was it was quite simple as just listening to a TED talk. So I think I watched one by Amanda Burden and she was... Um, oh, actually, I'm jumping a few steps ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I'll just talk about the, the initial one, which is mm. I was in a sociology lecture and the lecturer was talking about hostile architecture and it was just a whole new world for me because i was just like i didn't realize all these things and i started to see net like urban features and how it affects people like the, the way people behave
2: hmm. yeah
4: and then so jumping back to amanda burden and then ted talks but yeah um so yeah and then i like basically she just introduced the whole idea of urban design and planning and then that's when i was like this is a thing and and then I decided to check it out, and here I
1: am. Yeah. And Will, do you want to sort of expand on your jump from biology to, or environment, to yeah. planning?
0: Yeah, so initially was- It's not a huge jump, I guess. Yeah, it's not a huge jump. In the context of my undergrad, I started off as a pure biology major. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of my internships was when I went to Mongolia to look at um, air quality, and was almost employed in a development firm there. And mm. I realized, like, oh, I don't want to be in a, in a lab for the rest of my life I want to be working where I love working and I realized like oh I could do environmental studies because that's a kind of in the school that I was doing it's a lot of combination doing how the environment interacts with um, humans and everything else and economics and part of that and then I also my just I lived all in um, all these different countries and the internships I did mainly dealt with international development and I looked going well I can't really apply all these environment interventions like solar panels and green roofs and reticulated water and uh uh wetlands all through cities if I have no idea how a city works mm. and I would I would just realized I'd be doing more harm than good to both the environment and um people living in these cities if I just kind of forged ahead and just like ah will plunk all of these green things in there and I was just like well I need I need these skills mm-hmm. and so here i am so it's both
1: sort of scaling up yeah yeah yeah. definitely
2: i certainly empathize with that sense that you need to know how the city works and how planning works to be able to implement anything i'm also an environmental engineer Mm -hmm. and now i'm studying public transport and uh having an understanding of how to implement things that target you know making our cities more sustainable Mm you do need to have an appreciation of how planning works, yeah. how it gets done. So I'd be yeah, interested definitely. to ask you when you reach the end <laughs> of your studies, if, if you've uh, come to a new understanding, yeah. or you feel more empowered to be able to go and actually implement these things.
0: Yeah, I wonder if I'll have more answers than questions. Mm. That's what kind I worry. of, I, of I'm worrying. I'm hearing this and I'm worrying a
1: little bit. It's like, yeah. I try to resist it, but there's a tendency within planning education to sort of reach the conclusion that. It's all very complicated (laughs) (laughs) more research needs to be done, (laughs) which isn't exactly practical. So uh, part of the idea of today's podcast, as well as introducing maps and the uh, quick maps race and the Festival of Urbanism, was the tie-in to another event at the Festival of Urbanism, which then will um, segue to you, Loughlin. That's the sound of me unfolding this ridiculously large pamphlet, (laughs) (laughs) which is also like a throwback to Melway's. Um, (laughs) You know, like where we had to get people had to read the newspaper on a train and like pull the whole thing out. That's the pamphlet for festival urbanism. One of the talks is donor-driven tsunami housing in Sri Lanka: resident outcomes and experiences. So it's going to be a talk by a guest visiting scholar from Sri Lanka. Name? Can you pronounce it? Yeah, Ranga Jiwa. Yes. So I as out. I understand it, Lachlan, you went on one of our studios to Sri Lanka and worked there. I did. So yeah. it
3: was a studio ran, um, ran by Rangjiwa. Um, I
2: can just see What's yeah. a studio? What's oh, yeah. Sure, sure, sure.
3: <laughs> um, so it was an opportunity for study um, in Sri Lanka in a, a program that uh, was offered by the University of Moratua. Mm-hmm. And was obviously a lot longer than our two-week kind of um, visit Mm -hmm. Um, but our opportunity was to be a part of that for the two weeks Um, and what we managed to achieve in in, in that time was uh, a field study Um, so we got to look at Turkey Village Mitagama um, which is a Turkish sponsored post tsunami resettlement Um, and so we that's a
1: series of words I've never heard
3: oh right so uh, the so after the tsunami on, on Boxing Day, there was a, a big push. Uh, I think partly um, assisted by PR in Australia, to um, have a better set of planning guidelines around um, making sure that there wasn't as much devastation the next time there was a tsunami. So part of that meant that uh, there's a there's now buffers, um, mm-hmm. especially areas to the south, um, and the number uh, precise number escapes me, but things like should be elevated um, on a on a mountain would be ideal, um, and also um, a, a fair bit inland. Um, and so this particular settlement was sponsored by the Turkish government. There's uh, 450 houses, uh, and what we discovered upon going there. So we did a bit of a, a site study. We had a, took you know some photos and did a bit of modelling. Um, they did some really impressive um, physical models, um, which which were really cool. I got to see some photos. Um, and we got to do a survey as well, uh, and so the survey revealed to us that a lot of people had sold on their housing and they moved back, <laughs> which is an interesting consequence. and so they
1: sold on their new elevated housing. That's and moved right. Back yeah, else. And
3: moved back somewhere else. Yeah. So a lot of the people there um, had since occupied the housing, um, weren't actually uh, directly affected in that from the tsunami but instead bought into it because it was more affordable housing
1: oh. mm. mm-hmm.
3: and so um, the things we kind of um, saw were there's um, a, re- a real lack of service especially with things like water so you only get water for about half an hour twice a week um, I so say a
1: day some a
3: week. some at higher elevation and they get half an hour a day that's uh, half an hour in a week which
1: yeah. do you know which times they'll be no. Which times? Yeah. yeah.
3: So I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays. So they did know? Yeah. You don't just
1: wait there next to the tap the whole time? No, no, no. They do it's know. And bad. they and they
3: store it. They have fridges and things. Oh, yeah. um, electricity goes out a lot. Um, the transport is down to the south um, and walking conditions are quite shocking to get there. Um, so a lot of people don't, don't use that, that bus. Um, and that obviously has a big, dramatic consequence for their transport costs.
1: So. Mm. So the slogan here I've got written, Build Back Better. Whose mm. slogan is that?
3: So I think that was the uh, the planning uh, kind of ethos, if yeah. you like. So to make sure that um, this didn't happen ever again mm-hmm. um, and, and have the same disastrous consequences, that we would be really careful with prescribing the buffers um, and, and uh, guidelines. Um, but I, I think our... Um, investigation showed in the process that there's a lot of other things to get right as well. So if things are at higher elevation, and you're going to make sure that they're positioned in a way to receive water, <laughs> you know, decently, because um, if they're higher than the water tower, for example, that becomes really energy inefficient because they're not relying on gravity; they're relying on electricity. Right. So the rollout of those services has to be managed effectively as well.
1: So in some ways, have I mean, things have been funded roads, hospitals, schools, houses mm-hmm. post-tsunami, but mm-hmm. have other things gotten worse or is it more uh, um, Well, yeah, I, I suppose
3: uh, in the limited time that I was there um, I could only see just that one village, uh, so in, there, there were local services like hospitals, uh, there's a, a local market in Wellagama so they're all reasonably accessible by, um, by cars and things um, but I suppose like the whole I think what you're getting at, like the whole paradigm or the whole dynamic is quite difficult for people to get used to, I suppose that's partly the reason why a lot of them just sold on their houses and went, you know, I'll go back to the lifestyle that I... So they had. went back to what
1: is officially a buffer zone? Is
3: well, that- so yeah, they sold on, so they got their house um, mm-hmm. compensated because of, you know, that um, they lost their, their last one um, with an understanding that they would stay there and uh, instead um, they decided that it would suit their lifestyles more conveniently if they were able to sell that house on. Um, and use that uh, income that they receive to go live in a lifestyle similar to what they had before. And did you feel like what you
1: learnt in Australia is really transferable in that context?
3: Yeah, my previous study in ANU really, really uh, pushes this idea. I think we alluded at it uh, a little bit a while ago, but it's just too complicated. It's really complex. Mm -hmm. Um, And one one of the key kind of warnings and the key cautions that you learn over and over and over again in the degree is... um, uh, don't assume you know everything, make sure you listen, be very, very careful, because, you know, uh, especially with cultural sensitivities. So things like, oh, we can't just ask people their income, we can't just, you know, budge into their houses and go, oh, or tell us your income, tell us your expense, tell us this, did you sell the house, did you this, are you this? And w- with that expectation, being really cautious, it was really surprising to see that people go, oh, my income is X, mm. oh, my expenses are X. Blank mm. face, oh, I'll let you in my house, I'll give you water, I'll give you anything, um, it's cool, you know? Mm. Just a real understanding that we're from university, we're asking some questions, that's cool, yeah, I can give you precise answers. It was very, kind of shocking, really. Mm. And it was also the same experience going into Kunja recently. Yes. That people um, have a lot less of this sort of sensitivity and, you know, uh, granted in, in a specific contexts, than I was previously warned about.
1: Will, you have experience in many different countries, right? Well, yeah. You were saying before you actually grew up partly in... In the Philippines, yeah. yeah. And did you mention Sri Lanka as well?
0: I was in Sri Lanka as a kid, as well as Tonga and the Cook Islands. All right. A little bit all over the South Pacific Asia. Um, yeah. Were your parents working in... Yeah, so yeah. my father works in um, the Asian Development Bank. And so we... Initially, he was a consultant based in Australia, and i kind of go for a couple months a year as he traveled, if it was the project was too long, and then eventually we moved to the Philippines, to the Central Asian Development Bank, um office and then we were in, in the Philippines for a number of years before I went to my undergraduate.
1: So do these, the sensitivities or lack thereof that Lachman referred to, it, it's all context specific right?
0: Very context. So I've had that experience of being, of people that I've worked with in, in certain um, projects that I've worked on being, oh yeah, we'll just give you that, like come in, we'd love to have you, like very, very cooperative. Mm-hmm. Um, because they want a better life, they want the things that we're giving them. and a lot of the time consultancies and international development specialists are very good at kind of manipulating this like oh you're gonna have a better like we can guarantee you you're gonna have Mm. a better life and in some cases that's not the case or if it is it's very time lagged sure and other places i've worked on have had a number of consultancies or a number of aid groups come in and promise these things and they're kind of at the point where like we're just sick of it. Mm. We, um, yeah. We'll give you the context. There's, of there's a
3: term for it. I think it's called development fatigue. Yeah, exactly. When you, <laughs> development so many, so many people come in promising the moon yeah. and they go, oh, just go away. Yeah. Like, anything that you do yeah. isn't going to be better than what we've got. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Is that it, part
1: so of it, partly a lack of evaluation or is this the way the money comes in that's just sort of the juggernaut? Come, what's your reading of it? Why?
0: It really depends. So part of my um, environment and sustainability master's, is we looked at some projects in Africa. and. There is one that uh, we're analyzing was with um, engineers abroad or engineers without borders based in the U.S. and the pro- the town had actually had six different development uh, things for wells come in and the one uh I laugh, important. It's, it's really it it's was just really the other things bad. on it's the tv just, yeah. as well it's like and then we dug a well exactly mm. and so in this context they uh, the one before them had not done a hydrological analysis yeah, of the like town that. at all because it's very time consuming it's very, mm. very cost intensive yeah. and that aid agency didn't have that resources they didn't have the engineers um and all of that they dug them um, some of them collapsed others were flooded mm. and then contaminated and then others were just they weren't um, the bore wasn't created properly, and sure. so the entire thing was just full of cholera, uh, of, of bacteria. Wow. And so none of them were usable, and so then the Engineers Without Borders had to come in and change some of them, and then make some of them more sustainable, and tried to look at their monitoring and evaluation to see how it is a couple of years later, and sure. it was very
2: hidden. So oh, I don't really
0: know right. how exactly it, it seemed like it was going well, but yeah. it's mm. tough.
2: You mentioned Engineers Without Borders, and I was going to ask a question about whether the intentions or the approaches of these eight organisations and consultancies that presumably come in with the best of intentions. Engineers Without Borders, they put an emphasis on user-centred design yeah. yes. of their work, Is yeah. that the? and you said they were successful, so has that played a role, perhaps, in their success?
0: Um, in that case that I analyze it seemed like it was. Yeah. But I, And I think, to, to your question, it's not really, it's maybe not the consultants that are coming in with a negative viewpoint, like they're genuinely trying to help, I think, as both of us found, yeah. we're genuinely trying to help, but the aid organization, the greater aid organization, um, it may be at a too large of a context to understand sure. that impacts of funding directly impact the people on the ground very negatively. Mm-hmm. Like if, you, if a project isn't funded um, in time, or if it's just yeah. kind of kicked around for years and years. Sure. Because
3: mm. yeah. you see a lot of success with um, development companies that are able to stay on the ground a exactly, little longer. Yeah. Um, and so the ethos of one that I've just recently worked with, Bridging Lanka, is that they, they try to have as much of a 50-50 as they can. So that means that um, the aid organisation comes in with you know um, sporadic kind of you know flashes of um, volunteering and, and donor support. Um, but what they try and establish is 50% of um, staff from the local area, volunteers from the local area, committees um, that are going to deliver the projects from the local area um, in their own communities. So, for example, with the Coolum project, the Urban Improvement Project in Manor, um, one of the first priorities is to get a, a committee up and started and mm-hmm. give um, a local contract to someone who's, who's got the skills within the, the village, because we're going to come and go, mm-hmm. but at least if there's some kind of um, community-run um, accountability, then yeah, it's got some... Definitely. Yeah.
0: The community engagement, community ownership, to, is from what we found, like, is the most important aspect of that project, so the Engineers Without Borders one, they were actually contacted by a, um, a women's group in that town who were taking charge of the water, because they are just kind of sick of it, they are like, oh. we can't deal with this contaminated water anymore, and they contacted the Engineers Without Borders, and basically they started setting up this women's water committee, and it seemed like it was working highly successfully in other projects that I've worked Excellent. in, the, the community ownership, and then, um, so like, either people in the project are sourced from the community, so either like project managers or um, yeah, or the, the translators as well, as I think we're gonna talk about later. Yeah. It's like the translators role becomes less of a translator and more of a cultural ambassador, and hmm. a lot more multifaceted than just a strictly translator role. Sure. And is this something that's changing,
1: do you think, optimistically speaking, that own community ownership is becoming more of a thing, or is it just sporadically some projects have it or not?
0: I think so. I think a lot of the large aid aid organisations are starting to understand that this is a a critical aspect of the success of a project. Mm -hmm. If there's no community buy-in, community engagement, or at least a an understanding on the same level as the aid agency, there's never going to be a project that works into the long term. And I think Mm -hmm. the amount amount of money that's in a lot of some of these projects, that long-term sustainability and feasibility. They they want, mm. and so does the community. Sure. Everyone wants that same thing. It's just working out how that common language is formed.
3: Yeah, because I suppose it, in in many kind of of these contexts, it goes just beyond the you know the the idealistic. Oh yes, let's let's engage with communities for the sake of it. But yeah. it goes further because the administrative processes, or even the resources behind those administrative processes, isn't quite as strong as they are here. So, for example, if you're a consultant, um, and so, you know, uh, at Movement A Place, we do a lot of work where we'll, we'll deliver something to um, council or, um, you know, another client, and there's kind of this expectation that, all right, so there's our, there's our advice, you know, I'm happy to, to help with any other further steps, but, you know, there's enough accountability within this system for it now to happen without any more support. In these contexts, it, it's. I, th- I think if you applied the same thinking you'd be really disappointed and you probably you wouldn't have a very good outcome because you'd have the expectation that that's okay there's um, there's enough accountability out there and there just there just isn't you yeah, you really have to see true. it over the line to see it happen um, because no yeah it's almost a point of no one else will help or no one yeah. else will do it so mm.
0: international development projects are kind of struggling with this accountability question it's mm-hmm. like when you have Six different nationalities kept working on a project of like the funders from one country, the, d- the actual development agencies from another, the consultants are from another, the contractors are from a different country, yeah. working in a community in one country that's made up of different community, uh, different nationalities within that community. Who's in charge of that's what it. happens? Yeah. And,
1: and it seems to be an, an industry, if that's the word, that's um, propelled by almost a, uh, a compulsion to hide stuff like that because it's it's a good news story most yeah time. that's well, how you get money come in that's right yeah. well I mean
3: there is definitely that um that uh, what would you call an outcomes kind yes, of definitely. focus um and so and you're, you're absolutely right you know it's easier to to say um you know donate us invest in us because we give you a good return not in the sense that you'll get your money back but you'll get the sense of you get to feel good because we get the job done and here's yeah, how exactly. we have all these indicators but that's not necessarily bad yeah. as an approach but um you know like I think I think what we're alluding to is that um, you know <laughs> um, there's more to it yeah it, t- it
1: strikes me that say like if it's true that greater community ownership is important and that's increasing they almost the organisations have a bit of a catch 22 they don't want to admit that the way they were doing it before didn't work necessarily so they have to come up with a way of spinning it if that's mm. the way yeah um, it's a bit yeah. uh, it must yeah. be a bit like that yeah mm.
0: it depends on the there's always been from my point of view there's always been a an emphasis on community development with certain people within aid Mm -hmm. organizations. There's always champions for a future, more progressive way of thinking, Mm -hmm. and it's as those people move throughout the development sphere, Mm -hmm. whether that's getting implemented or not, so someone may go, we're going to do this community development, it's going to be an amazing project, and it starts getting that with those legs under it, and then Unfortunately, they may have to move because they also sure. want a career trajectory. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on to the next person who also wants to go, well, I want my career to be better and beneficial, and I want to propose my own new project, so this project kind of gets sidelined, mm-hmm. and the funding starts to slowly dry out, sure. and then the champions who are leading this amazing progressive thing kind of just gets put to the wayside, and then rubber stamp finished, yeah. but left unfinished on the ground. And mm. yeah. yeah.
1: And what's the main thing really that
0: that development
1: organisations bring into this context? They bring money, they bring skills, is it knowledge?
0: But I mean, what's the, what's the real... Yeah, big question, hey. Yeah. Um, depends on the people working on I guess on you guys yeah.
2: went uh, to offer yourselves as a resource. Mm. And yeah, that's what
3: we, we did a calculation of um, what, what would it look like if the volunteer hours were costed. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we just applied our, our yeah. consultant charge-out rates and it's yeah. like, wow, well, yeah. I feel really good now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I have to say that the ones that I've, uh, ever been a part of uh, ones that are well uh, are either committed to a short-term project that they finish mm-hmm. or the one recently is one that's just there it's always there it's it's always looking for projects to do it's got a base in manner people come and go um, but there's a local staff which is always present yep. there's local committees that are always there um, so uh, I don't know I, I have to say that I'm, I'm way into that kind of a space where you can see things getting done yep. um, and you yeah. can be a part of things getting done. I haven't been, I, I wouldn't know, I haven't witnessed or been a part of once where, you know, things fall by the wayside or things don't get done. Cause
1: <laughs> <laughs> and do you learn from the experience? Do yeah, definitely. Going, yeah.
3: Um, yeah uh, listening and just really not expecting things, you know. Um, and then when you leave, you've you have all, like uh, with this last one, it was really just a, uh, oh, I, f- I feel like I just need to stay there. Like, I feel like yeah. I've got to do way more stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, the, the people with me, the directors, they're uh, kind of say you always feel like that. You'll yeah. always feel like, you know, there's more you could be doing. So, yeah. maybe we'll go back.
1: challenges across that
0: um, disciplinary perspective or
1: um, do they have different expectations? Of yeah that? I think so
0: definitely. Um, Mongolia had a, a valuer and then like um, you had some like historians and you had people in economics and finance and then cultural studies and then you had architects and designers and um, a limited urban planning thing and all of these um, groups working together and other ones. Um, I mean I think the Monash um, project rise, the revitalization of informal settlements in their environment project that one has so many disciplines and so many different people, and the whole structure of the program is designed to facilitate that interdisciplinarity, and that was the first project that I really saw that actually happening, and happening in a way that produced tangible results mm. um, that you could document. Because a lot of ways, like, oh, we're very interdisciplinary, we have all these people, and I'm like, mm. that's fantastic, <laughs> but um, there's a lot of siloing going on. Sure, um, yeah. And, like, as a... In turn, you're kind of like, oh, I'm very confused as to how I'm actually bridging these gaps or working with these different people. And, um, wow. yeah, there's a lot of, I think it's it's like um, the community development. It's becoming a more understood topic. And I think international aid agencies are very well placed to look at this because their um, projects always have a variety of different specialists. You have, like, water specialists working with um, redevelopment specialists mm-hmm. or social safeguards and um, or gender specialists more recently. And it's... There's always been this interdisciplinarity in the private sector.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, how documented and how well it's worked is up for debate, but it's always been there. Recently, at
2: least. You mentioned translation mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Does Was that communication aspect um, something you expected, and what were the challenges there?
0: Yeah. Um, so, in, for the Rise project in Indonesia and in Fiji, we had some community translators, and we had people. We already had contacts in each of these countries who spoke the languages that we were working in, but we did a lot of community visioning and getting um, the locals to kind of express to us what they want and how they the community look like and the problems that are happening it's very difficult to do across the language barriers especially when you have 30 people Mm -hmm. translating through one translator it's difficult
2: to do when there isn't a language barrier yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) right yeah exactly
3: yeah Yeah. Yeah. because i think so the first trip that i did earlier this year with sri lanka um our our last task was to do a reflection and i Mm -hmm. I historically hate doing (laughs) reflections because fun but my whole thing was um ah is it culture Uh, yeah a little bit is it language yeah, that's what it is. It's language. It's not just English to Tamil or English to Sinhalese. It's yeah. um, transport planning to someone who's not a transport planner. It's I'm from Australia and I understand these things about transport planning, but you're yeah. in Sri Lanka and you understand these things about transport planning. Um, I had a conversation with uh, a girl from the University of Moritua, like a student, and um, and that was the first part of the year. We just we went through a town and, and she went, oh, yeah, so parking's obviously a huge issue and, and you know, it's pretty, pretty fundamentally clear. Um, there's about three rows of... Um, there's no lines either, there's no parking yeah, lines, just three rows of talk talks and mm-hmm. I have no idea how they get them out. It's like um, you know, those jokes where you've got the car boxed in and they can't get yeah, out, you know? And
1: someone lifts it out and the oh, That's it,
3: yeah. yeah, something like that. It was it was that crazy. And, mm. you know, there's lots of uh, stuff on the roads, not necessarily as well regulated, so they're quite mm. smoggy. Um and she, she said, um, yeah, so parking's an issue and I went, Yeah, it looks like an issue. Um does anyone live in the town centre in, in this town centre street? No, of course not. They live in the hills, they live elsewhere. And I went, okay. And she mm-hmm. said, yeah, well, you know, why would you want to live here? And I'm like, because then you wouldn't have to drive. So then you probably would have less of a parking issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no one would want to live here. I'm like, well, why not? Oh, because of the noise, the pollution. And I'm like, yeah, because the cars, <laughs> which wouldn't, mm-hmm. which wouldn't be here. But there was even that getting mm-hmm. across. She was thinking, oh, of course. I mean, of course, you know, I we'll um, have
1: that here. All the that's exactly right. Like that. Yeah,
3: and you know, and, and it was my bad not going. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. So no one's ever gonna conceive in their in, in their minds. Oh, of course I'll make the first. Because imagine being the first guy to live in the city. That's miscommunication, you know. Um, and it happened a lot uh, in the recent survey I took. So I, I got I got the um, chance, the opportunity to do a um a transport study in this isolated rural area called Kunjukulam, which is about an hour away from Manor uh, in the north, and. Um, even just uh, talking to, because I think this is the first kind of time that Bridging Lank has um, considered, you know, transport as a thing to get involved in. So even just talking to the boss, who is from Australia, who's done a lot of plan. well, he's, he's from Sri Lanka originally, but he's done a lot of planning in Australia, in Brisbane. Even just talking to him, saying things like, oh yeah, headway, headway, uh, service, service, you know, things like that. He mm-hmm. goes, what's that, what's that? You know, mm-hmm. you need to make that clear and especially because not just to me but to the community who you just surveyed they need to know exactly what these terms mean so i really relied heavily on graphics and even yeah. then there's yeah. lots of things that i haven't got quite right so oh what do those circles mean oh that's the area you can get to in a certain amount of time they're called isochrones. okay well you need to make that more clear yeah. you know um things that if i showed anyone in you know here in movement and place consulting they'd be like oh what a great way to show how to get to a place in time? You know, because they're from the same discipline. So mm-hmm. I think you know, even challenging the universality of graphics. Yeah, you know, definitely. yeah, it's just so many, and you just to keep discovering all these new layers of language barriers, and you're just like, how do you? Yeah, so
2: it goes back to what you said initially about asking questions, in that you don't want to make the assumption that you can do something a certain way. Exactly right. Go in and I guess be humble and just
3: absolutely. But I
0: think definitely could be part of the role of the consultants, like what they bring, is sometimes pushing the local, envi- like the local community, to go, what can you change? Like there's different sure. ways of doing things that mm-hmm. um, that we've never <laughs> considered and you never considered. But let's work together to discover those. Yeah, and I think increasingly that's sort of the way that a lot of people are trying to work with. That's like, true. how do we move to these new environments that are that are understood across these contacts
3: and certainly I think in my last experiences I I think another thing that kind of blew my mind is because you're cautioned always about no one's going to be involved in your idea from the start you know it's going to be a really really intense struggle of you really listening and you really engaging and you know uh, and that's
2: planning right but that's it that's exactly right (laughs) but
3: but you you go there and I was starting to see just how ready people are to go oh cool that sounds good oh what do I need to do for that you go Oh, right, oh, well, yeah, I hadn't even got that far yet, but yeah, okay. So, for example, we were looking at some informal uh, opportunities um, to solve that isolation um, in terms of transport. And even just talking to the driver, he didn't rule out, a no, 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 I'm not reducing my prices and going regularly every week to make sure everyone gets a, you know. It was totally open. He said, as long as I'm able to make ends meet, as long as I'm able to make this cost to pay my finances a month, I'm interested. And I was like, wow. And pe- when you show people your designs for... So these pond areas, is coolums, um, we're trying to... In Manor, there's a big um, uh, kind of push for people to have their own private spaces. So um, these coolum areas historically have been these huge ponds that people used to get around and um, bathe in and, you know, spend really good, good time in. Um, at the moment, they're being encroached. So people illegally... Encroached
1: by what, sorry? So
3: people just have their houses and they go you know what, let's move my fence back a bit. We have a bit of, bit of a bigger backyard. In fact, I think I want a toilet block, you know, and they just okay. gradually encroach. There's no accountability mm-hmm. mechanisms to so say why not. And it's kind of not in the paradigm to think, no, that's a public space, I'm going to leave that. Because it's, if you, you go there, you go, this isn't a public space. You know, it's just, just a big water area, you know. Mm-hmm. And when it dries up, it's like it's just land. So we're trying to really, you know, get, get that kind of thinking of, no, 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 if we all move our things back, and we beautify the area, you'll want to be here. You'll want to spend time and share it with other people. Like that's, you know, um, and they've done a a pretty decent job with a few of them. UN UN Ops has helped with one as well. Um, But even when you show people the design and say, this is what it could look like, people are on board. People are like, oh, righto. Okay, what do I need to do? Well, if you push your fence back, that'd really help. Okay, I can do that. Um, You know, we can even pay you to offset the costs a little bit because we know it's not cheap to put a concrete wall back. And they go, yeah, that sounds good. Not all the time, but way more than I would think possible. So
2: what have been the main takeaways or the changes that you now want to implement through your planning studies and undertakings from these experiences?
3: Um, I suppose with Darabin, um I'm especially keen to continue to hone my graphic skills to see just how far I can push you know, the universality in terms of especially the discipline. Because if you think about a picture, um, it already you would hope um, gets past the barrier of um, you know linguistics. Jargon. You, well, yeah, you'd hope, you know. Um, so it, 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 you'd think that the first step would be that someone from any other country could look at it and go, "That's a heat map. What is what is the heat map for? Heat maps for heat, <laughs> you know, for example. It's like oh, that's pretty easy. Red means it's hot. Blue means it's not hot. Whatever language the word hot is doesn't matter, you know. So you'd hope that." with that first done, just by having a graphic in the first place, that you could then start to go, okay, how do I make this clear to someone who isn't a transport planner? Mm-hmm. How do I make it clear to someone who may be a transport planner, but from a different context in, in terms of the thinking? So that's what I'm really keen to explore with um, Inclusive City, with the Darabin Level Crossing project. I think yeah. you also
4: have like local, the local community that is rather active and a lot of experience actually in the Very planning true. system, especially mm-hmm. people from Darabin.
3: Ian Woodcock's piece the other day I forget what it was called but his whole thing was to challenge that by saying well if you walk people through their different options Mm -hmm. and you're able to very clearly express to them the plethora of ideas that there are people are really really happy to to cooperate and people often find those um, setups way easier to navigate and you end up having a a much better response and a much better outcome.
1: And I think that is the onus on us Mm -hmm. is to try and get to that point where you can not come in necessarily with an outcome in mind, mm-hmm. but come in with what we do have to offer, perhaps a bit more perspective, who knows, mm-hmm. knowledge. Um, and can we walk it through, walk people through mm-hmm. it, not so, manipulate yeah. them through it, but actually yeah. try to get a shared vision of what we want rather than adversarial. Mm-hmm. As funny as I find those, my whole bread mm-hmm. and butter is oh, documenting I I love it. I like <laughs> terrible fights. Yes, I agree. It can be It can and should be done better.
0: Yeah. To wrap
2: things mm, up, Will, did you have a takeaway from what you've worked on overseas?
0: Yeah, I think the RISE one really showed me the the need for interdisciplinarity and then some of the work that I was doing in the, the last semester on, we did a looking at colonisation on Mars and so it really struck home for me that there's there's a lot of potential future um, solutions that we can do. and. There's so many different specialists and different ways of knowing, and there's a little way that we can put these into, we can implement these in a lot of different countries, but we need the information and knowledge to be out there. And there needs to be translation of, of, actual translation of words, but also of knowledge between all these groups, between separate organizations, and then within our own teams. Like, You can't have an engineer working and engineering and not explaining to the ecologists what actually is gonna happen. Um, so that's something that I'm like would really love to see more of in the international development. And something that I'm working on, as my own um, academics, is like making sure that we kind of know how the broad scale of international development and then implementing that.
1: What do we have in cities like Melbourne that we take for granted that y- you realise more? I mean, water is the one that's pretty data. mind. Data.
3: Okay. <laughs> Not having to ask every single person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> having secondary data. Yeah. Having and a,
3: having a yeah, census every few years. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, that's just a given here. <laughs> that's really well. Nice. It's not a given at <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: not really But nice. it is very important. Yeah. Yeah. to keep it's advocating really for it.
0: <laughs> uh, for me, it's a public transport. Like right. even just coming from the US, like my school didn't have a very robust public transport. Like I couldn't go to San Francisco from my school mm. on wow. public. It would take me three or four hours. And how far transport. was it? Like uh, le- less than Clayton to the city. Wow. But but yeah, so it's that's something that I like. I love about now like, Oh yeah, I can actually attack. I I don't know in a car, so I'm just like mm-hmm. public transport everywhere for all of my daily needs and everything, and it works perfectly. But I could not do that in the states. It would just it's prohibitive, and all throughout Asia, it's it's for people who do. There there definitely is informal public transport solutions, and yeah, it's it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, we did do something right. I think. Well, <laughs> oh, other American guests remember Laura Nick. He was like. He came from somewhere that... He's from Boston, and (laughs)
2: it's refreshing to hear that we do have a public transport system that we shouldn't take for granted, because often we do complain about it. And and Monash is a unique global university with um, somewhat... Difficult access out to the Clayton campus, mm, but yeah. uh, it's good to be reminded that yeah. we've got a network that you can exactly. get around yeah. on if you want to.
3: And one that you don't necessarily—that isn't necessarily working on whether they make back everything from yeah, fairs yeah. mm,
1: Having it still understood as a public, yeah, at least in it. part, yeah. system. Yeah, these are things that can be taken away that we do take for granted, I suppose. But then I guess the challenge is how do you actually transfer that kind of yeah. shared, or what would you call it? Mm. It's more like an institutional commitment to something. Sure. You can't come in as an individual and yeah. give that to people, but yeah. I'm also thinking could we have some people from Sri Lanka come here? Oh, I guess we're having our talk, our speaker at mm-hmm. the Festival of Urbanism, but I would like, you know, a group of Sri Lankans to come here and tell me how to improve my house. That'd be awesome. We'd so yes. yeah. probably learn a lot. Ask you some questions yeah. about your income. And I'd rather I'd rather <laughs> pay them, though, that'd feel a bit weird otherwise. Yeah. Any other things we'd like to add before we wrap up? Yeah. No? No, All right. Great. Um, So, thank you to Lachlan Burke, Will McIntyre, Sylvia Tongs, and of course to Laura, my co-host. Always a
2: pleasure.
1: So, if you want to find out more about post-disaster recovery in Sri Lanka, you can attend one of the talks at the Festival of Urbanism this year. It's starting on the 2nd of September. I can't remember the date of the Sri Lanka one. I think it's on the 2nd. All right, On the 2nd of September, festivalofurbanism.com, if you want to find out more. And if you want to go in the maps or urban orienteering contest as well, you go to that website as well.
2: That's on the sixth, is it? the Seventh of September. 7th. On the Saturday. Saturday the seventh of September. Yes.
1: Okay. I'd love to do this maps race in Sri Lanka as well. All right. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to This Must Be the Place.